The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. The value proposition, though, about transferring oxygen or air very efficiently, particularly in shallow water, caught the attention of a few folks in the greenhouse horticulture space. And one of those greenhouses, the first one we ever did, was in Dallas, Texas. And very small greenhouse, high temperatures in the summer would bring the water temperatures to north of 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, what happens when water temperatures rise is the amount of oxygen that water can hold goes down. It's Henry's law. It's a function of physics. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 3, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm sure you're in the right place as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week, we had a very fun and engaging conversation with Robert Lang, founder and CEO at Farm One. Maybe it's a testament to Robert's background or the fact that he's in New York, a city which I hold near and dear to my heart, but we really hit it off and it was a really lively and engaging conversation. I hope you have the chance to check that out. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Nicholas Diner, CEO of Moliar. I hadn't heard of Moliar before and I'm so glad we were able to make this conversation happen because I learned a lot about nanobubbles. Moliar is an organization that produces commercial nanobubble generators to deliver sustainable, chemical-free water for agriculture, reservoirs, lakes, ponds, and more. In this episode, we discuss Nick's extensive background working in the water treatment industry. He teaches us a little bit about how nanobubble technology works, what it is, and how it can be used to improve vertical farming and the agricultural industry as a whole. Finally, we dive into the ongoing struggle for universal access to safe water and how advancements in technology can help restore and improve the quality of sea life. I am always fascinated when I learn new things on these episodes and really excited to share this conversation with you. This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Daniel Dre scours the ends of the earth, fords rivers, and climbs mountains to bring you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up so you don't miss an episode. 
when we publish them. And also so you're up to date with what's happening in the world of vertical farming. So many interesting things have been changing rapidly. And kudos to Daniel for doing such a great job and wrapping that up every week for us. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. The queue is currently empty, so make sure you get those in and hear your name mentioned next week. Okay, who wants to learn about nanobubbles? So Nick Diner, CEO of Moliar, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. Appreciate you including us today. So where in the world are you? (laughs) That's probably a good place to start. So I am in the office. We have been open throughout this entire 12-month period. We've been very lucky. We are based in California. So about 15 minutes south of LAX in Los Angeles County. And uh, given the work that we're doing, both as a critical manufacturing for water, wastewater, and agriculture, we allowed to stay open. And we've been safe and fortunate. And uh, this is doing well as a result. And without uh, going into too much detail, it's now been a year since you know, everything has happened. And you know, folks have had different uh, varying degrees of experiences when it comes to COVID. But uh, anything stand out for you in terms of like the past 12 months? Yeah, I think the uncertainty when February, March 2020 hit of not knowing what the future would look like. And so if you take our company, we were at that point, about two and a half years into the marketplace with an entirely new technology, with no precedent for nanobubbles before, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into what that means later on. And so when all of a sudden you hear the world is shutting down and you are a startup, venture back startup, you don't really know what that's going to mean. Are we done? Is this over? What happens next? And so, you know, as April kind of came around, we decided to just sit tight and see what happens. We were lucky that we didn't you know, have to make any changes to the organization. We stopped hiring. But what happened was certain sectors definitely you know, got affected badly. That hurt our business. But then the food-related business, particularly horticulture, anything in controlled growing environments from a small greenhouse or vertical farm, even to starting to get in sort of the outdoor specialty crop space, it was growing. It was selling almost on its own. Our sales team wasn't allowed to travel. We were picking up business. And then when we did start to lift some of the restrictions and you know, safely and cautiously allowed sort of normal business activity, I use the word normal you know, loosely there, to resume, the, the food business has skyrocketed. And we have been growing through it. We have doubled the size of the organization. We moved into a new manufacturing facility in Los Angeles where I am now. And so it's, it's, you know, it's been for us a different story than compared to many. And we've been very lucky to be so closely affiliated with the food industry as a result. Yeah, so you mentioned nanobubbles, and that's probably going to be a, a term or technology that's going to be new to the, the listeners. So we'll start with the 20,000-foot the overview of what the technology is, and maybe a little bit of a background of the history of it as well. Yeah, I'll start with the second point. So Moliere got started in 2016. At the time, the co-founders of the company, who are still with us, who, who I work obviously very closely with, had just developed a new technology to form what we call nano-sized bubbles in water. And at the time, they had filed the patents for that technology, wanted to start a company. I met them shortly after, thought it was interesting, helped them put some, a group together to invest in them to get us started, and I joined to help, help them grow the business. And that's now sort of beginning of 2017, almost uh, just over four years ago, and it's been going very well since then. So what we do, we're manufacturing what we call industrial-scale nanobubble systems based on our, what we call, nanobubble generation technology. 
Let me start what nanobubbles are before talking about the products themselves. We are not a nanotechnology company. We are strictly talking about bubbles in the nano scale, about 100 nanometers in diameter and size. That's about one two thousandth the thickness of a grain of salt, roughly the size of things like bacteria and viruses. So at that scale, you don't see these bubbles. They behave completely differently from all other bubbles. So whereas all other bubbles are being formed when you're trying to inject gas into liquid, typically it's air oxygen to water for these different types of biological industrial processes, you form a bubble, the bubble starts to rise. As it's rising, you're trying to dissolve air oxygen as quickly as possible. Now, most bodies of water are very shallow. Most bubbles happen to be very big. So the bubble's rising quickly. It's not spending a lot of time in the water. Very little oxygen gets in. Bubble gets to the surface and pops. The vast majority, 80 and 90% of that oxygen is going to go to the atmosphere. It's very difficult to get oxygen to water efficiently as a result. Nanobubbles are so small, they actually can't rise to the surface. They stay in the body of water. So we're dissolving 30 times more oxygen or air per foot of water in depth. So it's highly efficient, highly economical way to elevate oxygen levels in water, which improves water quality. We can touch on that a little bit in terms of what that means. And then more importantly, these bubbles actually stay in the water. So they're dissolving very slowly. And the bubbles start to participate in different chemical, physical, and biological reactions that are creating value around improving water quality, oxidizing or eliminating the presence of pathogens, helping to remove, reduce the presence of things like biofilms and scaling that forms on piping infrastructure, particularly in irrigation. So you get this dual benefit. You start to getting enhanced oxygen levels around the roots of plants. And that's why we've done so well in that irrigation space. Plus better water quality as a result of the behavior of the bubbles and the oxygen levels in the water to provide almost like a cleaner, better water quality to the roots. So you get this dual benefit from the technology. What we're doing is forming these nanobubbles in a highly scalable system. So this, what we do is we diffuse the oxygen to flowing water. We do it at any flow rate. We standardize around certain features. We can do it for any liquid flow, any water flow rate. And we put it into a system that provides all the features and functionality for our customers to be able to utilize it. And what we see now, in, particularly in the farming area, where over 200 different Greenhouses or vertical farms are using a technology that the system arrives, they usually can install it in a few hours, maybe up to a day, program it to match their irrigation cycles and, and the volume of water they're using. Uh, so they'll bring the auction levels to a certain value, irrigate, and that's creating the value for them. Is it as easy as it, as it sounds? Is it a plug and play system? And, and how much retrofitting needs to be done for, you know, depending on the vertical farming? Obviously, you know, we've had conversations here with folks that are doing everything from the container farm to the, you know, the multi acre, you know, full build out. So I'm wondering what the applications look like in those different environments. Yeah, so we can accommodate the, or we can package the technology for any size. So we can go a small containerized farm to a large, you know, a massive traditional Dutch greenhouse. Some of the next generation greenhouses that are, invest heavily in technology are also customers ours. So it's very flexible in that, re in that respect. In terms of plug and play, I mean, it's close to it, right? Some things, you know, are truly plug and play where five minutes of effort, that's not us. There is some work. I would be misleading if I said otherwise, but typically it's minimal. It's plumbing and power. We're not really changing process. We're not going to change how you irrigate. If you have a storage water tank or a drain tank or a day tank where you do where you either catch the water for reuse purposes or you are setting up your fresh water with your, your fertigation, putting in your nutrients. Typically, our customers will just attach two pipes to the tank, one that's going to pull water from the tank through our system and one that's going to put it back. Our system comes with a pump. We can provide an oxygen concentrator if you want to use pure oxygen. We can provide an air compressor if you want air, or you can attach it to an external gas source if you buy your oxygen from a gas supplier and then you plug it into power. So, Typically, it's a few hours of effort, particularly in, in the horticulture space. 
When the company first got started, when you think about the applications where you thought this was going to make the most sense or, or show the most improvement, how has that changed? And you know, talk about the entry into the, the agriculture world as well. Yeah, no, I, I love that question. Thank you for asking. We started out thinking we were wastewater. So we were going to go to every wastewater treatment plant and provide them a more efficient way to get air into the wastewater treatment process, to elevate the oxygen levels, to enable the microbiology, the beneficial bacteria to treat the contaminants in the wastewater before it gets discharged to a, you know, a river, lake, ocean, et cetera. That's a hard business. Anyone who's been in the wastewater business can tell you it's a hard business. The value proposition, though, about transferring oxygen or air very efficiently, particularly in shallow water, caught the attention of a few folks in the greenhouse horticulture space. And one of those greenhouses, the first one we ever did was in Dallas, Texas. And very small greenhouse, high temperatures in the summer would bring the water temperatures to north of 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, what happens when water temperatures rise is the amount of oxygen that water can hold goes down. It's Henry's law, it's a function of physics. So when the temperatures rise, they're not able to maintain a dissolved oxygen, DO as we refer to it, in the water that enabled the crop to actually grow effectively. And you would see it in the roots. The roots would look very brown, very small, not healthy, not robust. So that grower heard about Moliere, heard about our value proposition of dissolving gases very efficiently, heard about these nanobubbles staying in the body of water, and sort of simplifying it a bit, said, hey, this could be interesting for us. Would you like to, to do this together? And we said, let's go test it. You know, just give you a free unit to trial. Let us know what happens based on what we were reading, the literature, the idea that roots need oxygen. All kind of made us feel like the science was on our side. Now it's just a function of does it actually work in a commercial environment. And so they tested the product using pure oxygen, injecting these oxygen nanobubbles through our technology into the deep water culture. They were growing through a deep water culture you know, pool. And brought the oxygen levels to about 25 to 30 parts per million or milligrams per liter. That's about two and a half to three times more than the saturation point you can achieve with air. And we did it very cost effectively. What was more interesting, though, was the output, right? And we have some great photos of this, and even on our website, where you can see basil, lettuces, basically leafy, leafy greens grown in oxygenated nanobubble water, grown in you know, basically regular water where they're using some sort of air stone or venturi to put air into it. And the yield improvements are greater than 50%. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to guarantee a 50% yield improvement everywhere you go. That's not the point. The point is that we saw markedly different outputs in growing without changing temperature. This was a 93 degrees Fahrenheit water. And I think what's more interesting for the farmer from what we've learned from sharing you know, the, the results of the photos from this experience with, and also others is the health of the root, right? You're starting to see wider, longer, larger roots, thicker root mass, bigger root mass, and a healthier plant as a result. And I think that's what's caught people's attention more than anything else, because yield is a multivariate equation, right? We're only going to affect one input. But what we do affect is that root development and plant health. And that's where we said, okay, we're onto something here. Let's try it again. So we did another greenhouse, small one, actually introduced by that first group that we did, and then started doing it again and again. And now more than 40% of our business is horticulture. So mm -hmm. it has truly become a sort of the cornerstone of what we do. And the most interesting part is most of the salespeople that we started with who are still in the organization came from the wastewater business. They've adapted their knowledge of water treatment and the role of oxygen to solve problems in these other industries. It must be interesting because, you know, when you tackle a problem like agriculture 
and you can make marked difference in the quality of the water, which results in a better crop and a better yield, which is going to result in better output. And you know, when you're talking about agriculture and controlled environment agriculture, especially, like those little things really make a difference in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, how much output you get, you know, from a square foot. That's you know, with a common measurement in CEA, because you know, every little tweak that you can make, and a lot of times, a lot of the focus here has been, you know, on the quality or the types of Aeroponic systems, you know, with aeroponic or the hydroponic, or the types of LED LEDs or the robotics that they're using. So this is the first time that I'm having a conversation with, uh, you know, someone, a company that's actually looking at it, the the actual makeup of the water, which is something we probably take for granted. And I think I get the sense that water is something you've been studying for a while because you had a, a previous role at LG in water as well. Yeah, but yeah, for water for me it goes back almost 15 years. Started at General Electric and GE. They put me in the water business for what was supposed to be a short-term project, turned into a five-year stint with GE Water, which was a fantastic experience. On that side of it, we were dealing much more with purification. So the filtration of contaminants in water to get to a higher purity water combined with the removal of salts, so power plants, microelectronics manufacturing facilities, and also drinking water for hotels and resorts in the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world where they're not on, let's say, the municipal grid. And they actually have to build a plant in sort of the hotel, so to speak, to form drinking water quality from seawater. That eventually led me to, and what brought my wife and I out to California to join a startup in the reverse osmosis membrane field that was called Nano H2O. And that was some technology that was spun out of UCLA. And what we were doing was developing a new membrane to separate salt from water more efficiently, which is a function of how much pressure does it take or energy does it take to force seawater through these membranes and separate the salt from water. So we thought we had a, we did have a more energy efficient way to do that. An incredible experience. Traveled the world as a result. Most of our business was outside the United States. But that was really just around separating salt from water. Complex in nature, but very, you know, sort of binary. You give us salt, we separate it, we give you fresh water. And then eventually that became part of LG. LG bought the company. What I think is more interesting about what we're doing with Moliere and sort of to your point earlier about maybe we don't pay attention enough to water, is water is complex. It's a very complex chemistry. Everyone's water is unique, which is why you can never guarantee an outcome in what you're doing when you're offering a solution to somebody. You can only guarantee a change in the property of water in that particular person's water. In our case, we rise, we increase the dissolved oxygen content, we remove pathogens like pythium and phytophthora. But what that ultimately translates to for the customer is always going to be highly dependent on what on what else is in that water and what they're doing with it. But it's definitely fascinating in that respect. I can't imagine what it must be like in your household when it comes to decisions about what type of water to drink and (laughs) how the taste of tap water, and that's probably been going on for decades in your house. Yeah, I would say my kids, my eight-year-old, my six-year-old know more about water than they probably should. Probably than they want to, but at that age, they don't know the And when people ask you, I dabble a little in like learning like differences and you know you have the reverse osmosis and I, I bought a distiller so yeah. I was distilling water and that takes a little bit of time because it probably takes you know a good six to eight hours to distill you know a couple of gallons but what's but what I found always found fascinating yeah. is the residue that was left over as a result of the distillation and naturally when you distill it you remove everything so you do have to put in some of the trace minerals and all that stuff right. in there as well so i'm just wondering how your opinions and thoughts on the quality of the water and you know if, if people were to ask you like what's the best in an ideal situation the best water to drink on a daily basis what would you say 
Yeah, so my opinion on that has evolved quite a bit over the last several years. I would say prior to what happened in Flint, Michigan, tell you to drink tap water. If you don't like the taste of it, put it through a Brita and get the, for the carbon filter and you know, get the taste that you want, but you're not going to change the health and safety of the water. Obviously, what happened with Flint, and of course, that's only one case, so you can't judge the entire you know, municipal water supply yeah. as a result. Certainly, you know, makes you think twice about giving advice. But then I also think some of the conversation around contaminants of emerging concern, that's the expression those communities studying water quality refer to things like PFAS, these forever chemicals that are now apparently showing up in 90, 95% of our taps and unclear to what extent there is a health and safety risk. But I think some, you know, there's, there's no downside in considering how to, uh, to mitigate that, obviously, besides the cost versus just consuming it blindly. So I think people should be paying more attention to their tap water and what they consume when it comes to drinking with it, you know, showering and, and cleaning things. That's obviously a different story. You know, in our house right now, we still do drink tap water. We use a Brita or carbon filter to change the flavor of it. Of course, I'm drinking bottled water in front of you, but <laughs> we generally drink tap water. Yeah. I do trust the water supply, but uh, obviously there's good reason to always now be more cautious given some of the the things that have happened in space. And are there, I mean, if that was a concern, is something like reverse osmosis, is distillation, yeah. you know, is, is there one that's better than the other or any others that I'm leaving out? No, those are both equally effective. Yeah, so there's, there's membrane filtration, reverse osmosis is one of them. There's, there's things like ultrafiltration that you'll hear, which is slightly different in terms of what it can remove, but equally effective. You know, in other parts of the world that have been less fortunate to have the same robust sort of infrastructure we've had, most homes will have some sort of home drinking water treatment system. I just think of India, where they have many different types that are available. A lot of times they try to match the quality of the water in the faucet based on where you are in, in India, which city you're in, with the filtration system that's necessary. All of those are very effective. Distillation, membrane filtration, etc. And if you live on a, you know, if you are one of the 13 or 14 million homes in America that are on a well, you probably have your own home filtration system. For others, I think it's just a function of trust. Okay. Having had experience to the challenges and the issues around water and access to it worldwide, I imagine this is something that's been, that you've been aware of earlier than most people, and some people probably still don't realize it, but I think the studies that I've seen, and you can tell by some of these charities, like the water charity, for example, like, I think one of the things that people don't understand is the lack of access that people have to fresh drinking water outside of the uh, you know in third world countries and i'm wondering how much of that you became more aware of as you were getting older no for sure i would say the last 10 years particularly prior to moliere where we were very focused on the more of the municipal side of water treatment it's eye-opening it's one of those things that you hope everybody in, in some way or another becomes more aware of or gets to see just that the, the privilege that those in more of the developed economies whether it's the united states Canada, Europe, uh, have when it comes to just being able to simply open your faucet and have fresh, clean water, for the most part, come out of the faucet without, without a lot of thought. Whereas in other parts of the world, there's just huge numbers of people that don't have that ability. And then as a result, there are many that also suffer from poorly treated water, but they have no choice but to drink it because they don't know if it's contaminated or not, but they also can't wait because they'll dehydrate or they can't actually boil water for whatever they cook, et cetera. And you get these incredible choices that people have to make that, for most of us, we take for granted. I think there's another side of it, too, as well, which ties more to what we're doing today, which is how much water goes into all of the outputs 
that exist in all mm. economies, right? Just think about California. Somewhere between 70 and 80% of California's fresh water goes to farming, wow. right? And about seven, the majority of the world's water goes to yeah. agriculture. And I think we take for granted just how much water input is necessary for the output. And one of the things that we're trying to take a look at is by putting these bubbles into irrigation water, for example, do you get better water utilization? And if you get better water utilization, meaning you need less water, what effect would we have on the overall water consumption? And what does that mean, particularly as a result of climate change and access to the fresh sources of water becoming harder and harder? What does that mean for these industries and how they can actually benefit from utilizing less water to achieve the same output they need? Are you at the point where you've done those comparisons or is this a little too early? Too early. We definitely wouldn't make that claim. We've seen observations in various applications where nano bubble enriched water seems to flow more easily through things like soils or columns of minerals and rock and ore, etc., which probably leads a little bit to what they call sort of the wettability of water. So you've ever heard of like surfactants and water, soaps and water make water wetter, flows faster, flows easier. Nanobubbles seem to have similar properties in that respect. And so one of the things we look for when we do outdoor irrigation is the ability for water to, to drain through the soil, the compaction of soil. So if the soil is very compact, you'll get that puddle that forms in the top. And that's just because it's taking a long time for the water to penetrate through that. We want to see if there's differences in the way the water will flow through these compact soils. And, and if that's the case and the soil is able to retain that moisture, then we're on to something. And that's something we're looking at over the next several months as part of the sort of evolution of how our technology goes into more and more applications or deeper into existing applications. On the site, when you talk about the specific applications within agriculture, you have it broken up into horticulture, aquaculture, and food safety. Do you look at those as specific individual use cases? Yeah, and very much specific use cases, specific in applications or industries. We work with different partners and sometimes have different, completely different customers, and I'll elaborate a bit on that. So uh, I'll come to aquaculture third on that list. When we think about horticulture, sort of controlled growing, where irrigation, where Farmers are investing in irrigation, could be drip line systems, could be obviously if it's in a greenhouse, could be deep horticulture or NFT with the with the gutters. That to us is one specific market. Taking our technology and our products, injecting oxygen nanobubbles into that irrigation water, improving the root health, root development, plant growth. In food safety, we see it very differently. Food safety is really around the, the washing of foods and the or the sanitization of food packaging equipment and food processing equipment and the washing of food surfaces. Virginia Tech University, I would say now probably three or four months ago, published in a scientific journal a paper using Moliere system to produce nanobubbles, showing that nanobubbles were able to break apart biofilm, what they call biofilm matrices on surfaces like Vibrio, Listeria, coli, as a viable replacement alternative to mm. chemicals, chlorine, parasitic acid, et cetera. And that would be a different customer yeah. group. So rather than going to like tomato farm, you're going to like an apple orchard and not talking about growing apples, but washing apples. And that's a new segment. We're really starting to look at that through partnership potentially in developing that. We're just taking some of that work from Virginia Tech and starting to see how we can translate it to something commercially viable. Aquaculture is a bit different. We really focus primarily on salmon farming and shrimp farming, salmon being the larger of the two. In that segment, our customers are already using oxygen. We're doing two things. We're going to reduce the amount of oxygen they need to maintain oxygen levels to grow salmon effectively. And then we focus on certain, what I call niche, although still enormous, applications within salmon to help those growers overcome certain challenges. So salmon are sometimes, they're vulnerable to sea lice. Basically, it's like a bacteria that forms on the fish itself. You have to treat that. When you treat it, you want to maintain higher levels of oxygen so the fish are not under as much stress. 
So we focus in that area to help companies that specialize in sea lice treatment do it more efficiently with the salmon grower. We also do something which I think is the most interesting thing we do probably across all the applications is seafloor restoration or seafloor remediation. Oh, wow. So under net pens, so salmon starts on the tank on the land, it gets big enough, it goes out to a net pen in the sea and finishes its growth. While that net pen, there's fish waste and there's food waste that comes to the bottom surface of the, the seafloor, so lands on the seafloor below the net pen. And what happens is it starts to deplete the oxygen levels on the seafloor and the seafloor life dies. So the problem with trying to oxygenate the seafloor using conventional methods is that the oxygen, the bubbles rise. So none of the oxygen actually comes to the bottom. Well, nanobubbles don't rise. They're highly efficient at delivering dissolved gas, in this case, oxygen to a target. And if the target is the seafloor and you inject at the seafloor, it will stay in the seafloor. And so we're starting to do work through partners in Chile, where it's become a much bigger issue than elsewhere, around seafloor restoration, the remediation of the seafloor, by bringing oxygen levels back to the seafloor below these salmon cages. And it's interesting because it's another example of just how the technology starts to expand and create value in these industries beyond just a traditional put oxygen in the water. I would imagine now that like my mind is racing because like if you think about all these places like the coral right they talked about the places where they know that it's been damaged or it's beyond repair and i'm wondering yeah. if there's applications out in the wild not just in controlled environments where the injection of this nanobubble water could improve the quality of the sea life yeah our uh our head of marketing wants us to go fix all the bleached coral in the world i tell her it's going to be a lot of nanobubbles a lot of boats <laughs> but uh but she's absolutely right i mean the technology can help restore it. It's really a function of just the scale and the cost to do so. And, and it always comes back to, well, who's going to pay for it? And I think, and there's other ways to also try to address that issue, right? And so at some point, I think most importantly, the issue gets addressed and a solution is found. And if we could be part of that solution, we'd love to be. But it's an enormous yeah. problem that's going <laughs> to require some enormous scale. To Ocean's pretty big. Well, where we do think, yeah, where we do think similar is, is rivers. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, America's rivers are sort of under threat in a very big way. And people see it from just looking at it, right? They're yellow and green. That's a big area that we're keen to focus on and really start thinking about how do we restore the aquatic health of these freshwater bodies across the world. Is any of this patented? Yeah, our core technology is patented okay. in the U.S. and many international markets. And then we actually continue to invest in new ways to generate these nano-sized bubbles. So we have additional patents that are are pending related to nanobubble generation. We still invest heavily in technology development as well as product development. Take me back to the moment when you met the founders. Having had this experience in water, what was it that got you like excited about what you saw here? Because I imagine there was something there because yeah. you know the fact that you're now running the company means you saw some promise there. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, when I first met him, I wasn't interested because I was told it was an aeration system. And I thought aeration was sort of uninteresting. Yeah. It's, aeration has been around for 7,500 years. It's, it's widely used in every wastewater treatment process. You, wastewater comes in, you put some bugs in there to treat the wastewater. The bugs are aerobic, so you got to give it some oxygen. Well, you put an aeration system in there and then you just give it time and it will do its job. When they started to discuss this whole idea around nanobubbles and you start doing Google searches on nanobubbles, you will go down a rabbit hole very quickly. And it's fascinating. There are the extent of research going on in the academic community at the university level around the use of nanobubbles is extraordinary. We only focus on a few markets and they're obviously very big markets. 
around bringing this technology into sort of the commercial industrial world. But there's nanobubble, there's research around using gold-coated nanobubbles as an improvement to chemotherapy wow. for cancer treatment. There is the use of oxygen nanobubbles to deal with skin disorders. And we've been called by families who've asked us for that, which is always a hard conversation when you hear about the challenges people have. There's the use of nanobubbles for CO2 sequestration in concrete development, for example. So there's lots of different applications that are being studied. And when you start looking at that and you start realizing, you know what, this, is, this truly is a new class yeah. of technology, a new class of science that can create extraordinary value in a number of different very important industries and very much aligned with the goal of, of trying to address many of the environmental challenges that the, the world is going through due to the effects of climate change. Was science your favorite subject in high school? I don't know. I think I was history. <laughs> was, I was a history and economics major in college. Okay. So this is, I just pretend to be a scientist <laughs> or engineer here. <laughs> when the, were the pieces coming together? Because you know, obviously you ended up working at GE and was that interest just cultivated over time? Or is it something that you've always had a fascination with? Specific to water? Yeah, just, yeah. Oh, well, just, just learning about like systems and how things work and, and, you know, the science mixed with the history aspects of it. Uh, well, I imagine they all come together. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell you, there's two parts of it. One is I always have liked how things work and I do like working for companies that build something. Mm. So I don't know if I would do very well in sort of the software and services. <laughs> Nothing you can't touch. Yeah. Behind my wall here. Yeah, behind my wall here is a factory and we do build yeah. stuff and it's, my favorite part is just walking through there, which I do several times a day. So I do love that aspect of it. I think what got me really hooked on the water side of it is the local aspect of mm. water, right? So when I was with, in my previous company, I was lucky to travel to 92 countries and to do business in 92 countries and just seeing people, meeting people, learning about people in each one of these different places in the world and water is obviously very personal, it's very local, it's very fundamental to you know, every country's economy and every person inside that economy or country, that you start to get a, just an enormous appreciation for this, this industry. And you get to live a very extraordinary life as a result. So this is the first time you've had a, a leadership role, chief executive role? Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about that journey, because how do you prepare for that? And then obviously, once you're yeah. on the job, there's a bunch of things that you probably didn't see coming. So I'm always curious, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself, and and I know there's folks listening that are, are curious in, in that aspect of it. So I'm wondering how that's been for you. Yeah, if you know how best to prepare for it, let me know, because <laughs> I wish someone had told me that beforehand. Yeah, no, it's hard, right? I think the hardest part of what we're doing is the people aspect of it, right? It's finding, you know, really good people and attracting them to come work for this new thing called Nanobubbles and a new company called Moliere. And people take risk as a result, and I'm always incredibly grateful for that. Making sure people understand sort of the mission and vision of the company, and that evolves. And in our case, it can evolve rapidly, and it evolves rapidly because all of a sudden we discover a new purpose for nanobubbles, and we that's mm -hmm. interesting. Let's not get distracted, yeah. but let's also not ignore it. And trying to, and then also given COVID, we are we do have a number of people who are working from home, and we haven't had a team meeting in over a year where everyone's together in a room, something we would do twice a year. And we have employees that are in Europe who haven't met half the employees in the company because we've doubled in size and trying to get everyone to really understand each other because you want to do business with people you yeah, yeah. like and you understand and you, and you know how they work and to do that through zoom all the time is challenging it's tiring yeah. so i think you know that whole understanding of finding the right people creating that right organizational structure keeping them 
focused and aligned with what we're trying to accomplish and then when we do pivot or, or change, making sure it's well communicated, that's the hardest part, right? And I always think about, are we creating enough visibility in the organization? Meaning are people seeing everything they need to see? Are we communicating effectively? People being you know, up to speed on what's happening? And do people really understand accountability? Not who's to blame, but who's responsible? Who's got this? That's the challenge of this job more than anything else. And that's why I spend most of my time focused on. Can you think of any relationship you've had with uh, someone who has served as a inspiration or a mentor for you along, along the way? Uh, yeah, a number of people. My father, definitely one of them. He worked in a company and uh, they manufactured and they were international and it's been incredibly helpful in that respect. My wife has been very, <laughs> very helpful for me. She works way harder than I do and has also had two kids who've been you know, working, I mean, doing school from yeah. home while she has a very demanding job, heroes, definitely. much harder than mine. Yeah, and just her ability to manage yeah. time. Like, managing time is an incredibly hard thing to do. She does it exceptionally well. I do it exceptionally poorly, and she has been very helpful yeah. there. And then even just, at, you know, from my experience at Nano, right? So the founder at Nano H2O was the CEO who I worked for, still very much involved in what we're doing here today, and is a very good mentor. But yeah, I think for me, they exist everywhere. Not just people I've worked for, but people I've worked with and people who've worked for me have helped me become much better. How have you grown as a leader since starting the company? I've become more patient, mm. even though I'm incredibly impatient. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably more than anything else. And so how do you think about you know growth of the team when you mention all these you know unique applications for nanobubbles, even educating people as to the potential and the uses for them, and then thinking about where, you know, do you need more salespeople? Do you need more marketing people? Do you need more scientists? You know, you know, as yeah. uh, sometimes as the the buck stops here guy, you know, you're put on the spot to make some of these decisions. And, and I imagine at this point you have a team, but I'm wondering about your thought process, how you think about, you know, how do you grow and in what direction? Yeah, we need all three of those functions and we need them badly. We are recruiting for them, by the way. We do have open positions, all three of those areas. I'll tell you what we've learned over the last three and a half years of doing this. We've learned that, you know, if I take agriculture, when we go to talk about irrigation water to a farmer, a farmer doesn't want to talk to another farmer. They don't want to talk to somebody who comes from the farming industry. They want to talk to somebody who comes from the water industry. They have a specific problem or a potential benefit that we can create for irrigation water. They want to talk to somebody who understands water as a result. And so the people who've been highly effective in the sales area of our company have a strong appreciation or passion for water or wastewater. And wastewater just sort of being analogous because the learnings from wastewater you can apply to water from based on what we're doing, putting various gases, primarily air oxygen to water. So what we really think about, and that applies to all industries, not just irrigation. I just use irrigation as an example. So what we really think about now is, you know, we've got over 700 of these nanobubble systems deployed globally. We're fortunate enough to be growing at a very nice rate. And now we're really thinking about how do we do this on a global scale? And it starts with figuring out which geographies, which countries, which territories, whichever you want to call it, do we want to expand into next? And how do we find those highly effective salespeople that we've been fortunate enough to find here and also already have in the Netherlands and start to expand that? And then what kind of support do they need from us to do their job? They're the ones that need to make decisions. Water is local. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. They need to be able to make decisions on the ground locally for their customer, with their customer. And our job here in Los Angeles to, is to support them as, as effectively as possible with, with the right products, you know, the right delivery, with the high quality and the right tools to do their job. And so we'll invest here to support them there. 
both in terms of industry strategy as well as product marketing and application engineering. And in the application engineering side, the research side, that's probably the most exciting area. I spend way more time there than I should just because my curiosity always brings me there. But uh, you know, we're learning every day around the fundamental properties of nanobubbles and, and what you can do with them and, and do work with a number of different industries and, and leaders in industries that are consistently showing that nanobubbles create value and it's unique value and it's surprising in terms of how they behave. And are there applications for personal use? I think of, uh, I've done float tanks before, so I'm just, that's an experience where I'm totally immersed in water. And I've had really good experiences there from uh, just calming the mind aspect. So that's something that came to mind, but I don't know if there's other similar types of applications that could be on the horizon. Yeah, I think in the consumer space, the probably the, the most interesting ones based on taking what we've done in industrial space and applying it is it's sort of in that that sort of wellness space, swimming pools, hot tubs, spas, et cetera, where the same value proposition related to the oxidation benefit of a nanobubble, the ability to naturally oxidize pathogens, can be accomplished using less chemicals. So if I can reduce the amount of chlorine mm. in your pool by putting just our air nanobubble generator in the discharge of your existing yeah. pump because you're already recirculating water, that's interesting. I think that could be valuable. You know, it's a function of how much the consumer wants to reduce the amount of chlorine they use. Chlorine is highly effective, but many people don't want to use as much chlorine as necessary. And if if we can help there and tap into that, I think we can we can create something valuable for that space as well. That's probably the, the most logical near-term consumer opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, we have a, one of our co-founders talks about wealth... Fish bait for well oh, yeah. Actually, I don't even know. What you, I'm not a fisherman, <laughs> so I don't know what you call it. But you know, keeping the fish more oh, vigorous yeah, yeah, and yeah. healthier, and so the list of ideas around this is pretty long. What's been the most interesting thing for you as you started to learn more about the vertical farming, you know, controlled environment industry? Because you know, that was the origin story for this podcast. Just me being fascinated and, and yeah. having and learning along the way by having these great conversations with these CEOs and founders. And so for you, not even understanding that this was going to be an application when you started the company, now seeing how much value it's adding for this industry, you know, what's, yeah. been, what's your learnings been? Yeah, I'll tell you, obviously there's a lot of economic reasoning for building greenhouses and, and creating the whole vertical farming, horticulture industry and, and the growth that you're seeing. What I like about it though, isn't that economic part of it. What I actually really like is that we're part of a solution to a much bigger problem which is how are countries or populations going to grow locally, responsibly in harsher environments with the, as a result of climate change being hard to grow yeah. locally. And the fact that we're playing a role in that is incredibly important to me and I hope to the organization and our entire team because it, it's important, right? And so when I see, particularly countries like the Middle East, right? So in, in the UAE or Saudi Arabia, that whole Gulf Coast, the GCC area, you know, the, the effort they're making to figure out how we're going to grow in a desert you can't do that unless you're doing vertical farming or, or, or you know, greenhouse type farming. And the fact that we can play a role in that and make that more cost effective and more viable and more responsible, more sustainable is an important sort of vision and mission to be behind. And I think that's my favorite part of maybe anything we're doing as a company, but particularly in what we're doing in this space. Yeah. And it seems to be a consistent message that I hear throughout these conversations, you know, the more people we have working on this problem, you know, the better, you know, there's no, I really don't get the sense that anyone feels like they're in competition with each other. I think it just really this need to solve this global problem, you know, of access to food, quality food, and, you know, 
supply chains and everything that all these different companies are doing and through their unique specialties are improving their sort of like piece of the process, which is what I love. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's nice to be part of that. What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Hmm. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that one. A, t- a tough question. I would say the tough questions that we're experiencing professionally now are what to go after mm. and what not okay. to. So there's the silver, you know, that shiny silver spoon, the expression of, you know, everyone wants to, ch- or the shiny object people always want to yeah. go chase and having to tell people no more and more, which is never fun, right? Is, is getting to be a bigger responsibility as the company is growing and obviously falls on, on, on someone like myself to sometimes make those decisions. That's the hardest part, I think, professionally. Okay. Is there anything about the technology that I haven't asked that I should? No, I, I think we okay. covered it. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's the only thing I'll add just from something we're doing that sure. I think is pretty interesting, particularly as we expand into, into maybe the specialty crop outdoor space, which I know is a bit different from the yeah. vertical farm, is we're starting to offer our products now in terms of these more mobile systems we offer as a service. So we're really trying to create more of a nanobubble ecosystem mm. around our customers and how we operate with them and our channel partners in the, in the process. And I think that's going to be an interesting aspect of what we're going to be doing combined with the digitalization, the digital platforms that we're putting in place to be able to enable our customers to, be able to control this equipment more easily remotely, have visibility into the equipment and the quality of water, and really trying to not only provide a solution to the problem, but also make them aware of the problem and connect it to. And I think that puts Moliere in a unique position in, in this aspect of how we enhance the value of irrigation water. Yeah, that reminds me. It seems like with a lot of these applications, once the system is in place, you know, something, anything to measure or track the effectiveness, I think is really important. And, and I imagine that's something yeah. to, maybe to what you're alluding to, this ability to measure exactly. the results before and after, during, and just, you know, so that the the client can see the efficacy of the systems, I think is, is probably something really important for them, especially as they're thinking about the cost and the time of making an investment like this. No, for sure. And that's what we anticipate as well. And I think that's where we're going to be able to create more, more and more value as we go deeper and deeper into these different industry segments. Well, Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time to educate the listener on nanobubbles. It's something that it, it sounds like a Jetsons technology. <laughs> <laughs> when you first hear it and it sounds like it's a completely made up term and and obviously people's mind goes to nanotech but i think a familiarity with the term nanotech is probably helps these dis- discussions a little bit more now because it's not such yeah. a you know strange concept and i think we're seeing more and more technologies working at the nano scale and you know you're doing it with water and they're doing it with fabrics and i think and there's just a, a wide array of industries that are starting to work at that level and realizing there's almost like another whole world that's just was out of our, our purview, right? Out of our eyesight because we just didn't have the way yeah. to measure it. And we're discovering more and more about the world around us that <laughs> was always there. That <laughs> we just couldn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to that is because you said that, you know, it's a Jetsons technology. I, I did leave out. We do have a partnership with Utah State University and NASA looking at using oxygen nanobubbles and irrigation water to irrigate plants in microgravity oh, environments. Nice. So with the, you know, decades from now and when we are growing, you know, uh, outer space, Mars, moon, wherever, the idea of irrigating effectively in these microgravity environments needs to be solved. And so we are part of that that effort to go figure that out, which is a pretty neat project to be part of. Your Jetsons comment wasn't that far <laughs> off of the act, from the actual reality of where we're at. Yeah, sometimes when I think about where the future is headed, I get excited and 
kind of i turned 50 last year so i'm i'm like i probably won't be around to see the super cool stuff but even with the stuff that's happening in the next 10 20 years is just i love technology i love uh future technologies i love movies about time travel so all that stuff is just yeah. and it's to see some of these stuff these things like that were just a thought in someone's a science fiction writer's mind you know 30 40 yeah. years ago or coming to fruition it, it's pretty exciting times to live in i'll tell you that much uh, absolutely Absolutely. So where's the best place for folks to learn more about Moliere and to connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Uh, certainly our website, Moliere, M-O-L-E-A-E-R.com. And, you know, start there and easily get in contact with any number of people on our team or any one of our partners through that platform. Okay. That's the easiest place to start. All right. We'll make sure we have lists to all those in your socials in the show notes so people can connect and learn more. I imagine after this episode, we'll have piqued some folks' interest <laughs> in learning more about the technology. Awesome. So thanks for your time, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Appreciate you having us and including us. Thanks again to Nicholas for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks again to our Season 3 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out the last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash VFP15. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with Eric Levesque, co-founder of Cultivated. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There. You can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.